Good morning, Mission Fellowship. I hope that wherever you are as you listen with us, you're able to lay aside all the chaos that surrounds you and be refocused on the fact that Christ is still on his throne. He is still good. We are his people. And while we would much rather be gathering in person, we are still united by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's take a moment of stillness and take a deep breath together as we allow our hearts and minds to be quieted by his Holy Spirit so that we are ready to take in God's word together. If you've not yet watched the video link that I sent out to members and regular attendees last week, please do so this week. It's an important message for those who consider mission their church home. It is also available on our church Vimeo website. You can get there by clicking on the icon that looks like the letter V in the upper right corner of our website at missionsalem.com. As we begin our teaching this morning, we will first have a reading from Psalm 133 read by Samantha Cavalli, and then Colossians 3, 12 through 15, read by Michael McEwen. Then one of our deacons, Jeanette Edel, will lead us in a pastoral prayer. We've also added a few worship songs led by Seth and Danielle Spangle at the end of the teaching. As we enter a section of scripture that is on an extremely emotional topic for many, I pray that we would all lay our hearts down before the Lord and seek his word and will in humility. Lord, again we ask, please give us ears to hear what your word is saying to us this morning. Amen. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you are holy more than we can ever know, and yet you yearn for relationship with us, to know us and be known by us as sinful people. That is amazing, Father. You are also a God of unity. You long to be united to us, and us to you, and us with each other. Your unity is beyond what is humanly possible, which, apart from you, is strife and brokenness. You care for us that much that you, Yahweh God of the universe, want to be united with us, a broken and scattered people. What God would do such a thing? You are so amazing. Father, our sin cracks and mars our relationships. Would you soften our hearts to in humility seek forgiveness? Father, our sin tears and breaks bonds down. Would you spiritually mend, as only you can, the brokenness in our hearts and between us? Father, in our pride we have hurt others, those who are dear to us and those we don't know as well. Please humble us to seek you, to admit our wrongdoing to those around us, and to love those we are hurt by, whether family, friend, or stranger, just as you loved us who crucified you. Father, thank you so much for the example you set for us. You are amazing, and we love you. Thank you for not calling us to follow you in intangible ways, but for humbling yourself to our level so that we could tangibly, personally know you. Thank you for being good, for being a good God. Father, this is a hard passage today. Will you soften our hearts to hear your word as you intend it? 
Help us to lay aside our agendas and truly seek your truth. Give us grace to understand your words in this passage today and the beauty of who you are that might be easily missed. May your heart and character be made known to us more through this story. To you be the glory. Amen. If you wouldn't mind joining me in Mark chapter 10, that's where we're going to be beginning our teaching this morning. I hope and pray that each of you had a wonderful weekend last weekend. It was a beautiful couple of days, and I've been praying that the Mother's Day teaching was encouraging, no matter what emotional place you found yourself in last Sunday. I was thankful for the brief pause in the book of Mark, because I didn't think that the section we were going to be covering today would be very applicable or encouraging within the context of Mother's Day. But as we are a church that wants to gain the full counsel of God, we are back this morning look at, looking at Mark chapter 10, no matter how hard it might be, in a section that has at its core the topic of marriage and divorce. Now, anyone who has been in ministry or around the church for even a short time knows that this topic is extremely volatile within the church. I'm not exaggerating when I say that I have met a great number of people who, by their words and actions, rank this topic up among primary theological topics, and will even choose a church based on how the church views the topics of marriage and divorce. I'm guessing that some of you listening, as you come to this passage and topic, have very firm opinions and emotions around it. Maybe you come with presuppositions this morning because you have experienced divorce yourself. Maybe your parents divorced and you are completely against it for that reason. Maybe you've been through a divorce yourself and it was a horrible experience and so you bring shame with you to this topic. Maybe you've been divorced and it gave you a sense of freedom and so you come with the understanding that divorce was actually good for you. Whatever the case, we each come to this topic with pre-existing assumptions and beliefs. The key to reading it is to make sure that we are listening to God's word and not interpreting his words based out of our own truth. And I have to admit to you, my experiences with people's varied emotions on this topic make me graciously cautious about unpacking this text, especially over the internet. This is a nuanced discussion, and so it saddens me that I can't see your faces as I preach or talk with you immediately after our gathering if you have a question or concern. If you do, feel free to reach out to me at hans at missionsalem.com, and I'd love to dialogue with you. It also saddens me because over the last few weeks, I've seen the growing division in our country, the church at large, and even among people I love, regarding the current COVID-19 situation. And so the last thing I want to do this morning is throw another log of potential debate and divisiveness on the fire growing in many people's hearts. At the same time, I believe that within this tough text lies extremely important truths, not only about marriage, but also about relationship, even as it applies within our current climate surrounding COVID-19. So let's jump into the text with open eyes and listening hearts to see what we might learn as we tackle the teaching that I've entitled, What God Has Joined Together, Let Not Man Separate. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Before we read through, though, let's first look at the context surrounding this section. If you're taking notes, you can write down this first section. The context. Heavy social debate around divorce. The context. Heavy social debate around divorce. For us to grasp what Mark is communicating... We have to understand two kinds of context here. First, we need to look at the literary context, the flow of thought in which we find ourselves as we read. In this section of Mark, we are still within the teachings of Jesus regarding the topic of discipleship. Remember that this was kicked off with Peter's confession of Jesus as the anointed one, the Messiah that they were looking for. And Jesus responded that he is indeed the son of man spoken of in Daniel, in essence establishing the kingdom, and he is the one whose disciples will take up their cross and follow after him. Within this section on discipleship, there are three distinct statements of Jesus that then also detail his upcoming death and resurrection, which is the path to his glorification and enthronement. His path of suffering and self-sacrifice on behalf of his followers is the example and model of how we are to live once we accept him as Lord and receive his free gift of salvation. This then flows into the teaching of Jesus on what a disciple is to look like 
and how their life is to be lived. Beginning with this section we are looking at today, Jesus gives three very practical statements. We're going to look at the first two. The first is on the topic of discipleship in relation to marriage, then in relation to children, and then in relation to material wealth. All founded on, as we will see again in verse 32 next week, one of the three announcements of Jesus' death and resurrection. Also woven throughout this section is the theme that discipleship is not just obedience of Jesus' new law, so to speak, but rather relationship to God and one another within the kingdom. The section we just finished with in chapter 9 ends with being at peace with one another. The section directly prior to that is Jesus correcting their self-absorption around being great in the kingdom and viewing their authority as supreme. So that's the literary context we see in the text. The second context that we need to grasp is the cultural context of the day surrounding the topics of marriage and divorce. Two huge debates regarding marriage were boiling over at the time of this event. The first had to do with the Levitical law surrounding marriage, which we'll talk about in a moment. This law had set off a heated debate that was brought to an apex by two rabbis known as Hillel and Shammai. Within the Jewish community, it was one of the most divisive issues of the day. Bringing the topic up to Jesus, the Pharisees most likely hoped that it would cause him to alienate a portion of his followers based on his answers. Or maybe they thought that if he answered it contradictory to scripture, it might alienate all of them. It was a very divisive topic. But then it was also a tough topic politically. A few months ago now, we looked at the story surrounding Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias, and how they had to both divorce their current spouse in order to marry one another. Speaking against this idea had gotten John the baptizer killed, and so maybe the Pharisees thought the same would happen to Jesus if they could get him to speak ill of it as well. The emotional tension around this topic was compounded by the fact that divorce was becoming far easier in the Roman Empire. This was evidenced by Herod Antipas and Herodias. The foundations of Jewish morality were being undercut by the political and social commentary of the day. So it makes great sense that Mark would include this, as it was core to this distinction between disciples and the non-believing world in the first century church. We will see these cultural contexts play out in our section of text today. So let's read the first section of Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the regions of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, now that we've seen the context, we also see the controversy. And that's the next section of the sermon today. If you're taking down notes, you can write down the controversy. Is divorce lawful? The controversy. Is divorce lawful? What we need to do first is we need to go back to the law that they're referring to. And we find that in Deuteronomy 24. Would you turn there with me? Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And here we see the Levitical law that's referenced in Jesus' discussions with the Pharisees. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, And she departs out of his house, 
And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she had been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, based off of the supposed ambiguity of what, quote unquote, some indecency means, there was debate among rabbis as to what constituted a lawful divorce. This is where Hillel and Shammai come in. Let me quote from the Mishnah or the rabbinic commentary on the law. It says this, The school of Shammai says a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, for it is written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. And the school of Hillel says he may divorce her, even if she spoiled a dish for him, for it is written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. Perhaps now you can see the controversy. In the mind of many in the Jewish community of the day, It was a situation solely decided by the husband, and the wife had no rights whatsoever. There was no court of law. Merely handing a certificate of divorce to the wife, the husband would divorce her. In fact, in some cases, he would just repeat over and over again, I divorce you, and it would be done. It was the norm of the day. So these Pharisees come to Jesus asking the question of if it is lawful to divorce. Now, notice they are not asking him which tact he takes, if he is pro-Shammai or pro-Hillel. And we can surmise from this that they were trying to trap him, assuming that everyone generally assumed divorce was okay. It's kind of like our society today, a church that stands firm on the exclusivity and lifelong commitment of the marriage covenant is a church that's seen as archaic and out of the norm. Well, you can almost feel the arrogance with which these religious leaders approach Jesus. They have confidence that they know the answer and are going to entrap Jesus. Now, what is crazy is that this was not even the point of Deuteronomy 24. You can go back and listen to the teaching from July 7th of last year on this section from Deuteronomy. There, I emphasize the tension between what is and what ought to be. But as a synopsis of that study, the point of this section of scripture is not actually about what right a husband has to divorce their wife, nor is it even truly saying that God is for divorce. In actuality, this set of ordinances was given because there was already mistreatment of women within the people of Israel, and God was acting to regulate it. He was trying to mitigate and potentially remove the oppression and harm of women that came through divorce for any reason other than the willful breaking of the covenant through adultery. It was written as protection and remediation, not as license. And Jesus knows this. Even in his humanity, he is a teacher of the law and knows it well, and so he tells them that they have it wrong. He's going to let them know there is a difference between concession and intention. Whenever we're talking about the topic of divorce, we have to remember that there is a difference between God's concession and God's intention. So Jesus leads them back to scripture to ask the question of if they are following God's will or their own. And so the next section that he outlines, and you can write this down if you're taking notes, is the complication. The complication is the hardness of our hearts. The complication is the hardness of our hearts. Much like any debatable issue of today's world, Jesus was engaged in a standard game of scripture ping pong here. You guys know what I'm talking about. Two well-meaning followers of God lobbing scriptures back and forth, both often proof-texting their own opinion. Brothers and sisters, you would be amazed how many different viewpoints I have heard explained to me over the years with misappropriated scripture. Well, the Pharisees used Deuteronomy 24 to back their view and try and draw him into trouble, but Jesus responds, not with just another scripture, but with authority as if he is the one that is behind the scripture. He says to them, well, that was put there because your hearts were hard. And that phrase, hardened hearts, is sclerocardia in the Greek. And it means to be obdurate and obstinate, stubborn, completely unyielding. It's an idiom that literally means to be uncircumcised in heart and ears. 
In other words, you have not allowed God to change your heart and ears, but you've stood firm in your opinion. And this is why the Bible uses the picture of a donkey who refuses to budge when its master tells him to move. You see, all of us have been here at one point or another. This is the person that is being told a similar conviction by God's word and God's people, but in obstinance and stubbornness, usually derived out of using their own emotions as truth rather than reality, they stand firm in what they alone believe to be true. And often they develop the lie in their own heads that everyone else is wrong and they alone can see the truth, surrounding themselves with people that might back them, even if it goes against scripture. And guys, there is nowhere that this is more rampant than in marriage issues. Jesus was stating that God had to write this concession into the law because they, the men of Israel, were too stubborn and stiff-necked to hear God's desired will and obey it. Now, if that is not a gracious God, I don't know what is. God worked with their rebellion and obstinance, even while his actual desire and will was something better. What was that better will? Well, look at what Jesus then does. He uses the creation account and quotes from Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 8, he gives his reasoning for using this. Not only was it the original untainted design of God, but it was God's work of joining them together in covenant faithfulness. His point was that since God did the work of making the two unified as one, man should not try and divide or separate. And not just any man, this is a statement to the man involved in the marriage, the one with the power to make the change from marriage to divorce. Jesus is saying just because the man has the ability to act in a way that would divide the marriage, he shouldn't do it in submission to God's will and design. With this statement, it seems that Jesus was making clear that the old concessions given for hardened hearts of believers had passed, and the new kingdom-centric view that disciples of Christ do not break covenant commitment had dawned. This was such a shocking revelation that verses 10 through 12 show that the disciples questioned him on it, possibly even challenged him on it. When they were alone later to get a deeper view, they asked him about it. But Jesus doubles down there and says, No, if a man or woman divorce their spouse and marry another, they commit adultery. Now, this is where things start getting really sticky. Some of you listening are probably waiting for the caveat. Some of you may have shame rushing over you, or possibly even anger and indignation. You might be thumbing through scripture trying to find a scripture that contradicts this one. But please just hold on a bit longer as I say a couple of quick points on this. First, I want you to know that I empathize with those of you that have been through the heart-wrenching experience of divorce. Whether as children, as spouses, or maybe even as survivors of domestic abuse, what you have gone through has been horrible. I have sat with some of you in unspeakably hard circumstances, and I've even walked with you through the tough decision of separation and divorce that you did not desire. In cases of unrepentant adultery or abuse of some other kind, I believe that the word is clear that God is on the side of the oppressed and wants to free them from that oppression. I could do a whole other teaching on Malachi 2 and the context in which God is angry with husbands for mistreating their wives and casting them aside abusively. Because of these situations, I understand the brokenness that can happen in marriages or even just in relationships in general, and I empathize wholeheartedly with you. It's in these situations, I think God, by his grace, does give the concession of divorce to us to deal with the reality of our brokenness. Now, to be clear, that is not license. And what I would ask of us is the fact that we then need to think through what it was that occurred, learn from it, and go to God in repentance, recognizing that what he desires is lifelong covenant faithfulness. If you have been divorced and you feel a level of guilt and shame about it, know that it is not the unforgivable sin. Take it to the Lord. Allow him to take it off of you. He died on the cross for every one of our sins, and every sin of mine is no different than your sin. 
They all cause brokenness between me and God and you and God. And so at this time, if you're feeling shame or guilt surrounding divorce, take it to the Lord. Allow him to remove it from you and allow him to breathe into you new life so that you can learn from that experience so that you might walk in his will in all future relationships. Because the truth is, is that at the same time, God gives us a concession. In many, many cases, I think we often stop short of God's desire to pursue reconciliation. We must surrender our earthly views and recognize that what Jesus is teaching here in Mark is that God's desire for those that claim to be his own is that we are a people who operate in covenant faithfulness. His desire is that we are a people that will do whatever it takes to live in unity and covenant faithfulness, even if it means surrendering our own opinions for unity. God's will is that we are a people that will do whatever it takes to reconcile when conflict occurs. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Christ was clear that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love one for another. Now, I've been around this topic long enough that I know that some of you are possibly even debating in your minds right now. Hans, what if the other person is unwilling to repent and reconcile? Or maybe you were saying in your minds, Hans, I tried that, and that is why I ended up being a doormat, and I won't ever do that again. Dear brother and sister, I want to validate for you that it is indeed against God's will when one party in any relationship is constantly asking the other to lay down their opinions and desires. That is not what God desires in marriage or friendship. And this is why it matters so much who you marry and who you surround yourself with as friends. But also recognize that Jesus isn't even focused on the question of divorce here. He is trying to make the point that true Christian relationships should bear the hallmark of two parties attempting to outdo one another in showing honor, love, grace, and submission to each other. And the reality is, is that the only person that you can adequately control or affect is yourself. And so even though we as a church, let's say, have a membership covenant, the reality is, is that it only works if every individual in that membership covenant chooses to hold themselves accountable to what's in it. Similarly, in marriage, the other spouse is not going to make much headway if they constantly are nagging or debating the other one. It has to be that each individual chooses for themselves to be committed to that covenant faithfulness. Now, the reason I bring up both the church and marriages is that this is where many of the epistles are at when they flow from commands for how we should love one another as members within the body of Christ into how a brother and sister in Christ should love one another within their marriage covenant as husband and wife. You can read on your own in Ephesians 5, 15 through 33. In that section, in Ephesians 5, there's a great example as the submission to one another within the body of Christ was to be the example that led into a husband and wife loving and submitting to one another as an image of how Christ loves his bride, the church. According to Jesus, the complication that holds us back from this ideal this desire of God, of covenant faithfulness in marriages, in friendships, or just basically in the body of Christ, is our hardened hearts. That's the complication. The controversy in the case of our text in Mark was marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but the issue of discipleship is not a rigid yea or nay on those topics. It is the underlying issue of how we conduct ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ in relationships, especially those with covenant implications, such as marriage and in the body. And this was the original issue at the core of our sin nature. Remember back in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of Genesis? Go there with me now and let's notice how Satan works to bring division among God and humans. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. In Genesis 3, 1 through 6, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Did you guys catch that? Satan shows up and says, hold on, Eve. Can you really trust the authority of God? In essence, he puts paranoia in place and says a conspiracy is afoot. You can't trust God. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's being too authoritarian. So what does Eve do? Rather than going to God working with God and seeing if this conspiracy is indeed true, she takes it upon herself to determine right and wrong. It seemed good and right and true to her, so she went against God's authority. And what was the result? It was division. If you continue to read on in chapter 3, it was division between man and God because we doubted his goodness and became paranoid of his will for our lives. And it was also division between husband and wife. Rather than working together, They were now all in it for their own self-interest, distrusting of one another. Mankind's original and innate sin would then flow down and be passed down from generation to generation, separating us from God and from one another. It was this separation and division that Jesus came in part to destroy. He came for so much more, but a huge part of why he came was this need of reconciliation. Not just in marriage, but in every relationship, especially the relationship between God and man. God sent forth his son to become a willing sacrifice, surrendering his own life for his enemies so that you and I might be brought into unity with the Father. On the cross, through his death, Jesus was the sacrificial substitute for you and me. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that we could not be separated from God and his eternal life-giving nature by our sin or by death anymore. This is the good news of the gospel. Because of that selfless sacrifice, Jesus has paved a way for you and I to be one with him. And when we accept him as Lord and Savior and repent of our selfishness and turn to him in submission, he pours out his Holy Spirit into our lives uniting us with one another in faith and love as the body of Christ, as we are united with him. But to turn to Christ, our hearts must be humble, repentant, and soft, willing to admit that we are wrong, broken, sinful, spiteful, arrogant humans that have rebelled against his authority and reign. We must turn to him in brokenness and humility and meekness, not in our own strength. And that is the call that underlies his next short teaching that Mark pens in Mark chapter 10, verse 13. Why don't you turn back there with me? Mark chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The next thing that we see here is the call. You can write this down if you're taking notes. The call, soften your hearts. The call, Soften your hearts. Again, understanding the cultural context, children were thought of as having no rights and completely as burdens in this society. The love and protection of children we know today was no part of the original culture of Jesus' day. Children, primarily male children, were seen as the next generation that would continue the family lineage and be there to care for you in your old age. But in daily life, they were seen as a nuisance. And so when parents bring their children to this religious teacher and healer named Jesus, the disciples think they are doing the right and appropriate thing culturally to hold them back so that the teacher is not bothered by them. But Jesus' response is a bit of righteous indignation. 
He points out to them that they do not understand his will, nor the will of the kingdom of God. And in fact, the children should not be hindered because it is they that are the example of who will be his disciples, those that receive the kingdom. He takes them, and in a sign of adoration and anointing, with inclusion and authority, he lays hands on them as if to say they are his. They are the recipients of the inheritance he gives. What is it about the children that makes them recipients? Well, commentators have listed many qualities, but I think we can simply compare it to Jesus' recitation in Matthew 5, starting in verse 2. Why don't you go there with me? Matthew 5, starting in verse 2. Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 2, he begins and says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You might notice that the qualities of most very small children are right in line. Meek, poor in spirit, another way to say soft-hearted. Those who mourn when they see the brokenness around them. Those who desire good and righteousness. Those who are merciful. Those who are pure in heart. Those who are peacemakers. Those who are put down even though they don't deserve it. You see, children are used as an example by Jesus because they have soft hearts. Meek hearts. The Pharisees had stood up to Jesus because they believed they knew what was right and were going to stand firm on it. Division in marriages happens because one or both parties believe that they alone know what is right and they refuse to back down or reconcile. Division in churches happens because one or both parties believe they are right and they refuse to back down or reconcile. Do you see a theme? Jesus' point here is that true disciples have as a highest priority the desire to strengthen what God has joined together rather than divide because they simply know better. It is to put God's desire and priority first above our own. Let me read to you some of the exhortations in scripture by church fathers of what relationships within the body of Christ and thus within marriages should look like. And as I read these, I want you to write down the address of each one for later. And hear these, not just for relationships in the church, but if you are married or if you have children, picture them within the context of your marriage and family relationships. First, from our earlier reading, you can write down Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9. Finally, all of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Philippians 2, 1-4. 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Dear brothers and sisters of mission, think for a moment how shocking it would be in the world we are currently living in if Christians, everyone who claimed the name of Jesus, actually operated and acted this way. I want to ask us, what do we need to lay down in our own opinions, attitudes, and emotions so that we might walk in the obedience of faith to these commands of our Lord in our homes, in our church body, and in our community? What God has joined together, let not man separate. So how do we apply this today? Hopefully the Holy Spirit is working in your heart already, but let me give you some more specific ideas. First, for application, what is the application if you're married? In the midst of the COVID-19 stay-home restrictions, many marriages are being frayed at the edges, and stress on top of anxiety and close proximity is leading to annoyance and maybe even open conflict. If that's you, I want you to reread the passages above and ask the Holy Spirit, to convict you of what you need to lay down for the sake of your spouse. Soften your hearts toward them and do your best to empathize with them as to what they are feeling. The solution in conflict is often to stop justifying your own position and to empathetically put yourself in the shoes of the other person and see what they might be feeling. If you are able to communicate that to them and show empathy, you will be amazed at the solidarity that is formed. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, what if you're married, but the marriage is already in a bad place? Again, you'll be amazed at how quickly the marriage will turn around if you simply take your eyes off of the spouse who annoys you and focus on the Lord and his will for how you are to live your life in obedience to him. One of the biggest lies of the enemy is that you aren't able to be obedient until other people change the way they are living so that it's easier for you to be obedient. And dear saint, I must lovingly tell you, this is absolutely false. True obedience originates out of our own heart first, through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not a result of your environment. God has called us to lifelong covenant faithfulness. If you are trying that, and it's still a broken relationship, and you desire counseling, feel free to reach out to me at hans at missionsalem.com. And we can talk further about what steps to take and possibly pursue counseling. How about for those of you that are divorced and maybe even remarried? How are you supposed to view this passage and apply it? Well, whether your divorce was within the grounds given by adultery or even domestic violence, this passage calls us to recognize that divorce is not God's desire for us. If this is you, search your heart to see if your mind and heart are truly aligned with God's view of marriage, and if you have truly embraced it, so that if you are currently remarried, you can commit to lifelong covenant faithfulness. And if you are currently unmarried, you can hold this truth tightly as you stay in singleness or as you look to a future relationship. What about if you're seeking marriage? Well, recognize that studies show that 60 to 70% of the things over which a married couple is in conflict before they're married will stay with them through all of marriage. In other words, you are not going to change your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiancé. Also, anyone who is married will tell you there is no perfect spouse, so waiting until you find the perfect one is a waste of time. So what do you do? Well, you look for someone who will seek Christ with you daily so that some change may occur by the Holy Spirit, but also you look for someone who you can accept. Know that what you are getting into with a marriage relationship is meant to last lifelong in exclusivity. And so if you decide to marry, commit to lifelong covenant faithfulness, accepting this person's idiosyncrasies 
and seeing them first and foremost as a child of the Father God before they're ever your spouse. We should also apply this to the love and respect we're to show our children. Just because they are developmentally behind us as adults does not mean we can disregard them or disrespect where they are at. Children, however they have come to us, are a blessing from God and in a sense have been joined to us by God. And so what God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't let your lack of patience or your internal brokenness cause division with the very being that God entrusted to you to disciple in his image. Don't trust that simply because you're doing what you saw in your home means it's the right way. Search the scriptures, talk to other parents about what parenting should look like, and then love your children, show them Christ, model confession and repentance to them. Again, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God has given you a bond with your child, and we are the ones that end up destroying it. Savor it, help it, grow it, and allow that bond with your children to last. Well, lastly, I think there's also application from our text today about relationships among the body. This is huge right now because, as I said earlier, it doesn't take much to see the rifts forming among Christians and churches everywhere. Two months ago, churches were unified and moving forward in mission and purpose, and not even ten weeks later, brothers and sisters within the body have become political enemies as statistics and opinions are lobbed at one another over social media. I think largely mission has avoided this, but I can see the beginnings of it starting to happen, and so I beg of you as a church, practice patience, practice tenderheartedness and mercy and grace. I see that isolation is causing distrust to the point that brothers and sisters who once embraced each other are now debating or sowing conspiracy and adding to the already present division among churches. I think Jesus would have the same command to us today that he did to the Pharisees. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Brothers and sisters, you and I are joined together by the Holy Spirit that calls us to humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain his unity in the bond of peace. Brothers and sisters, can I simply call you to take on softened hearts during this time where the world needs so badly to see representations of Christ's love, humility, and gentleness. The world doesn't need more of the same arrogance, anger, debate, and division. Whichever application applies to you when this teaching is over, I want you to take a moment and reread the scriptures of exhortation we just covered a moment ago. And then I want to call you to go to Galatians 5. Write this down. Galatians 5, 18 through 24. Galatians 5, 18 through 24. And I want you to read the two lists of fruit or works that proceed out of the heart, one by the flesh and one by the spirit. And I want you to ask yourself a question, honestly. Ask the question of which list describes the current contents of your heart. Is it strife, enmity, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions? Or is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? As we strive to navigate whatever lies ahead in our marriages, our families, and within our church— I pray that God would give us his Holy Spirit so that we could be a church body made up of many members that are holding the desire of God for unity and covenant faithfulness above our own needs and desires and opinions. What God has joined together, let not man separate. This is a much needed word for our marriages, but also a much needed word for all our relationships as citizens within the kingdom of God. May the Spirit give us ears to hear what God is saying to Mission Fellowship today. Would you pray with me? God, our King, we humble ourselves before you today. and We ask for hearts and minds to be conformed to your will. Where there is judgment, we ask for compassion. Where there is aggression and anger, we ask for kindness. When our pride creeps in, we ask for humility. 
When we want to assert our opinion and our rights, we pray for meekness. As we grow impatient with the way things are right now, we ask for patience. We know that our enemy seeks to divide us from you and from each other, and that he is very clever in doing this. In your name, Jesus, we humbly ask for unity with each other and with you. May we recognize the enemy's schemes for what they are. You have told us by your word what we need to live, to live righteously and justly. Give us discernment, Lord, to separate the truth from the lies. Holy Spirit, empower us to bear one another's burdens, even when they look much different from our own. Instill in us that reminder that our goal and our mission is unchanged, that you are unchanged, that we exist for your glory and that you are worthy of all of our love and affection. May our interactions both in real life and virtually reflect that our hope is not in anything but you, Jesus. You are the one we are waiting for. In you alone do we put our faith and our hope and our trust. Jesus, come soon and give us endurance to continue until we see you face to face. What you have joined together in your church, Father, let no man separate. In the name of our Lord Jesus, the reigning and anointed King, I pray. Amen.
Yeah. 